0: Our sermon text this morning is Luke twenty-four, verses thirty-six through fifty-three. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do your why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it that it is myself, I myself, touch me and see. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. You may be seated.
1: Let's open with a word of prayer again. Our Father, we ask to hear from you this morning that your still small voice would speak into our hearts in whatever way we most need it. We set aside this time as we expectantly wait to hear from you. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. As you've probably noticed, as Liberty was reading that, we are in our last week of the Gospel of Luke. Um, And that whoop is is not because, oh, we're finally over, but it's it's been so awesome. And uh, uh, this is week 64 in the Gospel of Luke. I've told people, I'd only been at Vine Street for three months when I started this series, and it didn't occur to me that this would be a very long series when I started it. Uh, We began this in Advent of 2019. We obviously didn't preach straight through. We also did other series in between. But uh, to give some context, when we began this series, COVID-19 wasn't a thing. I I guess technically it was a thing, but no one had heard of it yet. Um, When we began this series, very few of us had ever heard of Zoom Uh, Very few of us had ever heard or knew what an epidemiologist was or had ever cared about virus case numbers. When we began this series, some of you weren't married. (laughs) And when we began this series, some of you couldn't vote yet. It's a terrifying thing. When we began this series, I was five pounds lighter, so a little personal (laughs) information. So how do you conclude a 64-week sermon series um, that's had just so much rich, uh rich content in it and this moved us and taught us in so many ways um i i mean i, I guess i could do like an overview i think that might get a little bit tedious um, to rehash it all there's just so much and so I, the way i want to conclude um as we're looking at this last text is we're also thinking of what has luke been saying to us from the beginning is just ask this basic question what's been the point uh Luke wrote this with a purpose in mind. He wanted us to do something with this knowledge. Uh, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to give us this account of Christ and his ministry so that we would do something with it. What was the purpose of it all? That's the question I want us to ask. Why did we hear about Jesus healing you know, the woman with a bleeding disorder? Why did we see her uh, meeting or why, sorry, why did we see Jesus meeting with tax collectors and with sinners? and what's the purpose of all this? And I think Luke gives us the answer in our text, but the answer is the reason that God, by his spirit, inspired Luke to write this gospel, to give it to the early church, to be passed down thousands of years later for us at Vine Street Baptist Church, is that we might then go and bear witness to the forgiveness of sins that's found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the outline for us this morning, first point is Jesus' Jesus' assurance Second point is Jesus' commission. Third point is Jesus' blessing. If I could have figured out a way to make those alliterations ABC, I would have won some kind of Baptist sermon award, but I couldn't. But I did my best. Anyways, I just was like, that, I'd, you know, I'd get some kind of award for that. Anyways, those are our three points. Uh, verse, uh, Some real quick context. Verse 36, as we pick up, it seems to still be the day of Christ's resurrection. This has been a crazy day. It began in despair as the disciples uh, awoke after the Sabbath. They think Christ is still dead. They think that they had gotten something terribly wrong. But then from the beginning of the day, some strange, remarkable things begin happening. Women go to the tomb, and the tomb is empty, and they see a vision of angels who tells them that the Christ has risen. And then two disciples, as they're going home from Jerusalem, actually walk with Jesus for a few hours before he reveals to them that it is he And then Peter himself sees Jesus, and so this day that began in such darkness and despair is beginning to change quite rapidly, and the disciples are coming to understand and beginning to believe it might just be true that Jesus is not dead, but he is alive. And that's where we pick up in verse 36. So follow along as I read uh, 36 to 43. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. So as the disciples are meeting, as they're hearing these reports of having seen Jesus, all of a sudden Jesus himself is among them. And it says that uh, they were frightened. And I think the reason why they're frightened is pretty obvious. The image is that Jesus materializes out of thin air. All of a sudden he's there. And that would be unnerving for anyone to have someone just appear next to you And also, once again, it seems like the disciples don't recognize Jesus. We saw this with the disciples who were going to Emmaus. Um, It would seem that Jesus, in his resurrected body, although he looks like a human, again, the disciples walked with Jesus for two hours, not thinking anything strange about him, but he somehow looks different in a way that the disciples don't recognize him. And so here this person appears, they don't recognize who he is right away, and they're afraid of him, they think he's a ghost, And so Jesus begins to offer them assurance because how he begins to them is, peace be with you. He comes to bring them peace. And then as they're frightened, he offers them some assurance. And I want to just first point out the gentleness of Christ. In verses uh, 38, he says, why are you troubled? Why do your doubts arise in your hearts? The disciples, if the crucifixion of Jesus was a test, they did not pass. Uh, None of them understood. All of them abandoned Jesus. They did not show their best showing. But Jesus' first words to them are not, shame on you. It's peace be with you. It's words of concern and care. It's like when you're a parent and your child is afraid if they have a nightmare and, and, and they wake up screaming and you go into their bedroom. As a parent, the first thing you want them to know is, it's me, it's me, it's okay, I'm here. That's Jesus' first response to the disciples in their fear. He says, look, it's me. And he assures them by showing him his hands and feet. Verse 39, see my hands and my feet. That is I myself. He shows them the scars on his hands and his feet. Because honestly, who else would have scars like that? People don't live to tell the tale of a crucifixion. It's like, look, it's me. You can tell by the scars. But when Jesus is showing them his scars, he's not just helping them identify him. He's also showing them something deep about his love for them. As they're afraid, as they're fearful, he's not only saying, look, it's me. He's saying, look, look at how much I love you. Look at the evidence of my concern for you. And this is important because Jesus is about to send out his disciples with a sacred commission to go and bear witness. And it's gonna cost them. And they are under no illusions over what it might cost them because they have just witnessed firsthand what the crowds did to Jesus. They watched them beat Jesus and crucify him. And so they, they full well know if they go proclaiming the same things that Jesus was proclaiming, that may happen to them. And so Jesus is assuring them, see my scars, see how much I love you. You don't need to fear, because Jesus bears these scars forever." You may not know this about me. When I was in middle school, I had plastic surgery. Uh, I was in a skateboarding accident, and I got a cut on my face that went from my face tissue onto my lip, and we went to the general practitioner. And he said, well, because it's two different tissue types, your face and your lip, if I stitch it up, you may have a crooked lip line. And I'm like, sweet, let's do it. And my mom's like, no, we're not doing that. So we went to a hospital, and we had a plastic surgeon stitch me up. So I guess it technically wasn't plastic surgery, But it's a fun story. But here's the point. When we have scars, we do what we can to minimize them, unless you're a 14-year-old boy. But again, I'm glad that I don't have a crooked lip line. We try to minimize scars. We put on makeup to cover it up. They're blemishes. But here is Jesus, and he's bearing the scars of his crucifixion into eternity. And what's even crazier, though, is that Jesus is in his resurrected body. It says later in the New Testament that his body is the first fruits. When whoever is trusted in Christ at the end of the world is resurrected back to life, we will get new bodies, and they'll be like Jesus' body. His is the first. They'll be bodies that are freed from all the ailments of the fall, all the ways that, um, that, that disease and, 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 and sickness affect our bodies. They'll be freed from the effects of aging. They'll be perfect bodies. But on Jesus' perfect resurrected body, he chose to have the blemish of scars remain forever. Not because he needs to remember what happened. He lived through it. You got to think of the trauma of going through crucifixion. I wouldn't want to remember it if I were Jesus. But in his resurrected body, he keeps his scars. And guys, I mean, you know, the, 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 the Sunday school flannel graphs of like Jesus with a little like house nail in his hand, it's not accurate. They would have been stakes gone through his wrists They'd have to be strong enough to hold up a, 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 an adult man as he writhes for all of his worth on a cross for hours on end. These would have been massive, ugly, hideous scars. And Jesus, on his resurrected, beautiful, new forever body, he opts to have scars forever to remind us, this is how much I love you, This is what I'm willing to do for you. The lengths he's willing to go to rescue us and claim him for ourself. And this is why Christians throughout the centuries have spent a lot of time meditating on the wounds of Christ, the scars of Christ, the fact that for all eternity, Christ will bear the marks of what he was willing to do to chase after us and make us his own. And so Jesus says, look, it's me. Don't be afraid. See my scars for you. I did this for you. You don't have to be afraid. The more I think about the scars that Christ will bear forever, the more I think I I really don't have any conception of how vast and how deep the love of Christ is for us. Why would we ever fear or be anxious? Jesus says to us, look at the love with which I love you. See how fiercely and deeply I love you. There is no sorrow that can eradicate those scars there is no uncertainty or anxiety that can erase the scars that Jesus will bear for all eternity. There is no failure, personal or otherwise, that could erase the scars that Jesus bears on his body. Death itself cannot erase these scars. What could possibly scare us if we have such a Savior? Jesus assures them with the very wounds, the scars on his hands and his feet. But second, Jesus assures them of the fact that he is bodily resurrected. We see this in verses 41 to 42. And this is actually a pretty humorous scene if we can just picture what is going on here. Again, this is like a, a moment of great profundity of Jesus who's been resurrected, who is encountering his disciples. This is the first like, group kind of exposure he's had. And he's like, guys, it's me. See my hands and my feet they don't believe him. He's trying to reason with them, like, who else could it be? Who else had scars from the crucifixion? They don't, they don't believe him. So he's like, okay. And we have this scene. Again, there's, there's humor in this, where he eats a piece of fish. You can imagine the moment. Again, Like it's like the, the swelling anthem of the choir and the background music, and then all of a sudden it's just silence as they're, like, watching Jesus. And he's like, ah, see? Mmm, It's good. Mm, Watch me swallow. Mm, I'm real, guys. Like, it's a humorous scene. Like, in the middle of, of this, we get this instance of Jesus eating a piece of fish. But Jesus is willing to do this kind of silly act, not to give us comedic relief, but because it's really important. He needs his disciples to know he was bodily resurrected, his body was resurrected and transformed. Because at the end of the day, all of Jesus Christ's claims, the one, all of his claims that matter, the ones that are significant, depend on him having been bodily resurrected. If Jesus Christ's body was not resurrected, if, he, if that was just a spirit, well, then death has not been defeated. Because there are other times when spirits would come back from the dead and talk to people. In fact, 1 Samuel 28, King Saul at the end of his life in desperation calls up the prophet Samuel and speaks with him. He calls Samuel back from the dead. That's pretty miraculous. That's certainly not a normal occurrence, but Samuel's body is still dead. There is no undoing of death in calling Samuel's spirit back. But because Christ was bodily resurrected, because his body was brought back from death, what that means is that in the resurrection, death itself is starting to become undone. Jesus was bodily resurrected. He's overcome death. If Jesus hadn't been bodily resurrected, he would not have been able to bring salvation. Again, when Jesus died, he was offering up to God the Father a sacrifice uh, in place of us. He was saying, God, I will, I will drink the cup of your wrath on sin for all who will believe in me. But if Christ has not been resurrected, Jesus had a tragic miscalculation because it means that it didn't work. Anyone can die for someone, can claim to die for someone. It's a very, you know, poignant imagery, I suppose, but it doesn't accomplish anything. It would have been a tragic miscalculation. But because Christ was bodily resurrected, that's God saying, I accept Christ's death for us. It's enough to cover all sin, to cover all our shame, all our guilt. There's nothing more we have to do. It's enough. So Jesus is willing again to stop To do this, I mean, come on, it's the risen Lord of life. He's got better things to do than eat a piece of broiled fish. But he's willing to do that so that there's no question to his disciples. Jesus has come back from the dead, he's been resurrected. This is Jesus' assurance to his disciples. Now, a quick side note before we move on to our next point belief can be messy. These are the disciples who had spent three years with Jesus walking with him, living with him, listening to him. They'd grown up as devout Jews with the benefit of knowing the Old Testament. They had all the categories ready. If there was anyone who could have a quick conversion should understand immediately, it'd be them. But with this very, you know, non-linear progression of it just takes time for them to understand and to believe, it's messy. I think that's oftentimes how belief works. That can be the same for ourselves and our own. Coming to faith. It can also be true in those in in, in our life who we're trying to share our faith with. It's rarely a perfect linear, like everything clicks and they become this perfect Christian. It's often a kind of messy back and forth, but yet one in which God holds it all in his hands. So that was the first point Jesus' assurance. Our second point is, and, and again, that assurance is see my scars, see that I have been bodily resurrected. It is me, I'm here. Jesus Commission verses 44 to 49 again follow with me as i read along or follow along with me as i read it then he said to them these are my words that i spoke to you while i was still with you that everything written about me in the law of moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the substance of our text this morning. We just looked at before, that was... You know, again, the, the continuing uh, struggle to believe with the disciples. Afterwards, we see Christ's ascension. But this is kind of the central central message in our text. And again, while I mention verse 36, it looks like we're still on the day of Christ's resurrection. In verse 44 to 49, it's probably better to see that as a summary of what was talked about, taught over the course of 40 days. We're told elsewhere in the New Testament, there was 40 days between Christ's resurrection and his ascension. And so it's better to see these five verses as kind of summarizing what was Jesus teaching his disciples in those 40 days. And if we could summarize them in five verses, what is most important that Jesus is trying to communicate? Again, it says that um, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In verse 44, these are the words I spoke to you. This is what's most important for you to understand as you go forth and begin the church. And these can be summarized into three events of God's plan for the salvation of the world. There are three events, three key events that are summarized here. This is in verses 46 to 47. And the first event that is summarized here is that Christ should suffer. There's a common phrase in Luke where he says it's necessary for Jesus to suffer. In fact, it says it right in verse 26 earlier in this chapter when, God, when Jesus is speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He says, Was it not necessary? that the Christ should suffer these things. And then even earlier, when he's speaking to the women at the tomb, he uses different language, but the same idea. He says, the Son of Man must be delivered. You know, wasn't it not told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men? The first key event was that Christ should suffer. It was not an afterthought. It was not a plan B. It was not a contingency plan. It was always the plan, and it was necessary it was the only way that, 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 uh, that we who are broken by the fall could be restored in our relationship to God, it was the only way we could receive forgiveness and newness of life, it was if the Son of God, Christ himself, should suffer on our behalf. Now, a skeptic might look at this and say, well, why couldn't God just wave his magic forgiveness wand and forgive everyone? Like, Why did Jesus have to die? Well, the answer to that is that Jesus' death was the only way to uphold God's justice as well as his goodness. Yes, I guess hypothetically, God could wave his magic forgiveness wand and forgive everyone, but he would no longer be just, nor good, nor worthy of our worship. After World War II, there were the famous Nuremberg trials, I believe what they're called, but it's where many of the Nazi leaders were put on trial for their war crimes, for the Holocaust. And, and, that, and, and as the details of what was done in those camps came out, there was a sense that justice needs to be served. Now, what if the judge had just, quote-unquote, waved his magic forgiveness wand and said, you know what, I know you, million, I know you murdered millions of Jews in heinous ways, but you're forgiven. We would recognize there is something awful in that. That's the same thing with God. God is a good God, but He's a just God. And the only way for God to uphold His justice and His goodness and forgive us was that Christ would die in our place. It was the only way to address our most fundamental problem, which is our guilt before a good and holy God. And so the first event of, of God's plan of salvation for the world was that Christ would suffer. The second key event, again summarizing what Jesus is teaching His disciples, is that then Christ should rise again on the third day. Again, this is verse 46. Again, as I've said, anyone can die for someone else and say, I'm going to die for you and do it. But does it accomplish anything? Other than a a grand and morbid gesture, probably not. But Jesus' resurrection showed that his perfect life of innocence, his humble self-sacrifice, his offer of himself in our place, it was enough to atone, to cover for our sin. And so it was necessary that Christ should suffer and that then he should rise again on the third day. And then finally, the third event of God's plan of salvation for the world is that the repentance, this is verse 47, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to everyone. Up until Christ came, everything in the world, everything in the Old Testament was pointing towards the coming of Jesus, showing that we needed someone to rescue us and redeem us, showing that we could never, out of our own uh, resources, save ourselves, because the problem is not something out there, but it's something in here. And the Old Testament is preparing us that it's going to be through an individual who's going to come, who's going to offer himself as a substitute. Everything is pointing towards the coming of Jesus. And then after Christ suffers and dies... And raises again. Now everything is moving out towards the nations, towards sharing this gospel with every tribe and tongue and nation. These first two events, Christ's suffering and his resurrection, these have already been accomplished, and they're accomplished by God himself. We played no part in this. We were passive bystanders. But this third event in God's plan of salvation has now been entrusted to the disciples, to the church. That's why in verse 48 he says, now you are witnesses of these things. He says, the third stage, that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed uh, in Jesus' name to all nations beginning with Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. This is Luke's summary of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so again, this answers the question, why are we given the Gospel of Luke? Why did Jesus invest so much time into these 12 men and into the other disciples? Yes, because he loved them. Obviously, that's part of it, and he cared for them. But he invested three years of his life into them that they may then go and bear witness to what they have seen, to what they've experienced, to what they, have, to what they now know. He gives them a commission to go and bear witness to the forgiveness of sins. This is also our commission. We haven't seen Jesus with our physical eyes. We can't bear witness in the same way they did. But we have seen Christ through the eyes of faith. And just because they're eyes of faith and not physical eyes, it makes it no less real. We have come to know Jesus. We have come to know the risen Christ. And so likewise, we are also to bear witness of what Christ has done in our lives, of the Jesus we've come to know. Why has Jesus called you to himself? Why has he saved you and redeemed you so that you may go and bear witness to what he has done to all those in your life? This is what the early Christians were to do with the Gospel of Luke. It is what we are to do. You are witnesses of these things. Now, I think whenever we start talking about the mission of the church and evangelism, there's, there's objections we have that I think sometimes are very reasonable objections. One objection we might have is, as, as, as I'm telling you, based on the authority of Scripture, that you are called to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is, well, Mike, evangelism isn't my gift. Um, the Bible says that we have spiritual gifts they are given out. And evangelism is mentioned in Ephesians 4.11. It says some are given to be apostles, some teachers, some evangelists. It's like, well, it's not my gift. And so the person who has evangelism as their gift, they'll do their thing. It's not my spiritual gift. The problem with that objection is that it misunderstands what a spiritual gift is. A spiritual gift is not the exclusive way we serve Christ. It's just a unique way that God has gifted us in his grace to be able to serve his church. So for instance... My spiritual gift is not mercy. Does that mean I never show mercy? No. It just means that I'm not going to have the same kind of profound, powerful impact in my demonstration of mercy as someone who's gifted in there. You may not be leading 15 people to Christ this year because it may not be your gift, but yet you are called to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to the forgiveness of sins and the less. Another objection might be, "Why? Well, I don't know enough to share. I, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm going to share the wrong gospel, where I'll say something wrong and heretical." And one thing, first response to that, one thing is just to keep in mind, is that in Luke nine and ten, Jesus sent out his disciples to preach the kingdom of God when they clearly did not understand him. I mean, they didn't understand him by chapter twenty-two. They definitely did not understand it in chapter 9 and 10, yet he sent them out in his name to preach his kingdom. I think at the end of the day, this objection is wrong because it assumes that our effectiveness in sharing the gospel is based on our knowledge, our winsomeness, our ability to share effectively, when it's not. The power of our witness is based on two things one is the gospel message itself. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation. When we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ has died for us to bring us to God, there is power in that, inherent in that message. It is the power that can take a dead person and make them alive. But secondly... The power for evangelism comes from the Holy Spirit. In verse 49, he says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. He's referring to the Spirit, which we'll get to in a second. He says, stay in the city until you are clothed with power. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes, who takes our, our bumbling words that just seem silly when they come out of our mouth and makes them fall like lightning on people's hearts. It's interesting, because I get to preach a lot. I see this all the time. But there are times when I feel like the words I'm saying are ridiculous. And then people come afterwards and say, that, was, you know, that spoke to me so powerfully. And it's like, "Well, I felt like that was my worst sermon I've preached in months. But the Holy Spirit takes our bumbling efforts <laughs> and pierces people's hearts with them. We don't go out and share because we're great and awesome and and, and, and effective. We go out because the gospel is powerful and the spirit goes with us. The third objection I think we might have, and honestly this one resonates with me most, is that evangelism is offensive. I don't think, I would never say this, and I don't think any of us in here would ever say it, but in a pluralistic culture, right, where our neighbor is a Hindu and our coworker is Muslim and our friends are, are just, you know, kind of secular religious nuns, it, it, it can come across as audacious if not just arrogant to say what I believe is true and, and I, I want you to believe it too. I think you should believe it too. And no one wants to be a bigot. I think this is, I mean, again for me personally, this is certainly a reason why I feel hesitancy to share the gospel more. And so the first response to that is: yes, let's make sure our witness is in humility. Let's Make sure that we share the gospel in humility, not from a place of superiority. And the reason for that is baked into the gospel that we share itself, baked into that is a, is, a, is a dynamic that should cure us from any sense of superiority when we share the gospel. Because we believe that we are saved by grace, not by our works, what that means is that when you're sharing the gospel with someone, there is a decent chance that they are an objectively better person than you they may be a better dad than you better spouse than you like they may be a morally more upright person than you are because we are not saved because we are morally upright people we are saved by the grace of god and so in that itself should cut off any kind of let me let me let you know let me deliver you out of my own like superiority that i am better than you no 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 they they very well might be better people than us let's make sure that we share that if we do offend people, it's because of the gospel, not because we're not being humble. But second response to that objection is that I really think we need to very gently and very wisely challenge the relativism of our postmodern assumptions. Because they are neither livable, nor, when you think them through, are they intellectually compelling. It sounds very nice. To say all religions are the same, they all teach the same thing, they all lead to the same place. It doesn't matter what you believe. Just believe it wholly. It sounds very nice to say that, and it really makes you something like a nice person. The only problem is that it's impossible to be true. Because religions teach contradictory things, not about like secondary things, but about basic questions like, Who is God? What is he like? What are people like? Why are we here? Where are we going? Religions say contradictory things about those basic questions. And so it may be the case that Islam and Buddhism and Christianity and Judaism are all false. But they can't all be true. It's just logically impossible. And to say, well, I'm just not going to pick... I'm just not going to choose one. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to choose a worldview, you have to choose a belief system, and say, I'm just not going to pick. All you're saying is, well, they're all false, because they all make contradictory claims. One of them is right, or all of them are wrong, but they're not all right. And so when we bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's not us imperializing our neighbors and, you know, kind of pressing our beliefs upon them. No, we're just trying to be consistent with the convictions that we believe. Just like any person should try to be consistent with the convictions they hold. Vine Street, you are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to the most beautiful news in the world of how we can have forgiveness of sins, of how we can be freed from our guilt, of how our shame can be taken away, of how we can know the God who is and who loves us Deeply. And this commission is so important to God that he inaugurates a whole new reality in order to empower us in this. He sends the Holy Spirit. And this is where we get verses 49. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He says the promise of the Father, he's likely referring to, there's, there's a number of passages in the Old Testament that make promises about God sending his spirit. For instance, Joel 2 says there'll come a day when God will send out his spirit. Who pour out a spirit on on, on all flesh? And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams. It's this vision of a time when, when God, whose spirit had been confined to the prophets in the Old Testament, will all of a sudden pour Himself out on every one of God's people. And this is fulfilled in Acts two at the Day of Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out on the body. But the point is that God is saying. This commission I'm giving you is so desperately important to to your function as a church, to you as individuals, I'm going to inaugurate a whole new reality of how we interact with God. I'm going to pour my spirit out on you to empower you for this witness, to give you boldness, to give you effectiveness. The role of the Holy Spirit is intrinsically bound up in our mission to bear witness to the forgiveness of sins. And so that means that when you step out in faith and you take a relational risk or a social risk or a professional risk, the Holy Spirit himself clothes you with power. When you take a risk for Christ to bear witness to him, the Holy Spirit clothes you with power. Jesus suffered and died, but he rose again. It was God's plan from the beginning to restore broken humanity to relationship with himself. And Jesus calls his disciples to himself to prepare them to prepare us that we might live as witnesses to this great reality. It was their commission. It is our commission. This brings us to our third and final point, which is Jesus' blessing. Again, follow along as I read verses 50 to 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them, and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. I want you to notice something with me. In verse 36, Jesus begins the story with a blessing. He says, peace be with you. And in verse 50, he ends with a blessing. The picture is, as Jesus is ascending into heaven, his last words to his disciples are a blessing. Now, what is a blessing? A blessing is simply invoking God's favor, his power, his uh, his presence with someone. So one of the most well-known blessings in in the Bible is Numbers 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. It's a blessing. It's invoking God's face to be pointed towards you. His presence to be with you. His peace to be on you. The first blessing that Jesus invokes upon us is peace. It's peace to you. It's not, it's not just a greeting. Like we might say, hey, how you doing? But we don't really mean, I don't really want to know how you're doing. I'm just saying hi. I mean, Jesus is the one who can give peace, peace that passes understanding, peace with God, peace with fellow people. Jesus says, peace be with you, I can give it to you. His blessing, he invokes the blessing of God's peace. But then the second blessing, it doesn't tell us what it is, it just says he, Jesus blesses them. Now I think it's reasonable to assume that Jesus' blessing is what is given to us in Matthew 28 at the end of the Great Commission where Jesus says, "Behold." I am with you always to the end of the age. As Jesus ascends into heaven, as he's given them this great commission, which is far beyond any of us to accomplish, he sends his spirit, and he ends with a blessing. And it's the most tremendous blessing. Saying it doesn't matter where you go as you follow the risen Lord, it doesn't matter what alleyways he takes you down, it doesn't matter what kind of remote corners you end up in, Jesus himself will be with you, always. Even up to the very last moment of this world, to the end of the age, to the most remote, distant corner on this planet, Jesus himself will be with you. When we talk about evangelism, I think all of us feel a little bit of guilt and and burdened, and, and honestly, we probably should a little bit. But Jesus ends with a blessing, his last words are not, go and do. It's his invoking God's favor and presence, his very presence over us. I will be with you. It'll be okay. There's a 13th century anchoress, and anchoress was a, 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 a kind of like a woman hermit. An anchoress named Julian of Norwich. And she spent, again, all her time by herself praying And as she was struggling over the bitterness of sin and the fall and the hardness of life, she received a vision from Jesus and she recorded it. And so we can benefit from this. I think it's something that's good for us to consider as we consider Christ's final blessing on us. And when Jesus spoke to Julian of Norwich in the bitterness of her soul, he said, it was necessary that there should be sin, but all shall be well. And all shall be well, and all the manner of things shall be well. We're sent out in the name of Christ to bear witness to his resurrection, and we're guaranteed that there will be hardship that will come with that. But we're also guaranteed that the presence of our Lord will walk with us every step of the way. And so yes, there may be hard times, but all will be well because the risen Jesus walks with you, carries you, holds you near. No matter what may come, Christ assures us all will be well, and he'll come back for us one day. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't even know how to respond. That you have called us in your mercy and grace and given us a commission that is so wonderful and beautiful. That you have loved us with a never-ending love that you bear on your body, even now, the marks of your love. And through all eternity, as we worship you face to face, you will keep those scars as hideous and as ugly as they are. You will keep them as a reminder to us that you love us of what you did to pursue us. Please, Jesus, all we ask as, as a church, all we ask is that you enable us to be faithful to this commission. We don't want anything else, nothing. May we bear witness to the resurrection with the, every breath that we have bear witness to the forgiveness of sins that you offer freely. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.